Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. My name is Tad Mitsui, and I'm going to be your moderator today, whether you like it or not. I am very lucky to be a moderator for Dr. Paul Vassi because I'm trying to get this guy for two years. And he's very difficult to get rid of or get hold of. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to get rid of him because he's so hard to get hold of. Uh, he is supposed to be a professor at the University of Lethbridge in biology department, but I heard of his name in Japan. My sister was reading about his research on monkeys in Arashiyama near Kyoto. Another connection interest on Paul Vassi's research subject is, I'm a United Church member, and when United Church was having a hard time on the question of homosexuality, people thought the United Church was not Christian because they are, United Church is acting against God's law. So I said, what's God's law? Anything against the law of nature is God's law. And homosexuality is against nature. Therefore, United Church is against God's law. So I am particularly pleased to hear Paul Vassi talking about monkeys and homosexuality in other species. He's a biologist. He's supposed to be a professor at the University of Lethbridge, but he's hardly around. He's either in Samoa or in Japan or United States or all over the world doing research or talking about it or writing about it. Anyhow, today's subject is very interesting to me, and I hope it is for you too. Before I ask uh, Paul Vassi to come up and talk, I have to do regular spiel about SACPA. SACPA is voluntary non-profit organization supported by membership. If you're not a member, go to Lisa and pay the membership. And also, uh, the $10 you're supposed to put into your basket which will give some money to SACPA. So please put the $10, except the speaker. He get the free lunch. And also, uh, SACPA is supported by several important organizations, such as University of Lethbridge, which help us in publicity, Country Kitchen Catering Service, which provides excellent lunch, uh, Shaw TV, which uh, we broadcast today's talk on Sunday, 4.30. And uh, Lethbridge Herald, which usually covers uh, this event, and other media organization. And if I forget to thank somebody else, please let me know later. I'll thank them later. But anyway, our format is half an hour talk, 
half an hour lunch, half an hour question and answer. So, Paul, please come up and give us your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me come and speak to your group today. Can, can everyone hear me? Is that, is that? Raise this up. Can you hear me now? There, you can hear me. Okay. So th- speak into the mic. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming out today uh, and uh, coming to hear my talk. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be speaking to you about this topic of, well, I, I deliberately chose a I deliberately chose a provocative title. I figured it would bring the crowds out, but it, it is pretty much reflective of what I'm going to what I'm going to speak about today, and it's this issue of um, why why don't gay men or men that are sexually attracted to men why don't they go extinct? They're not they're not reproducing. So what is it that's that's keeping them around across cultures and, and over historical time? So we're, a lot of the research that's going on in my lab is trying to get at that problem. It's really, it's really considered to be one of the outstanding problems in evolutionary biology. How is it that this trait, male same-sex sexual attraction, can persist over evolutionary time? And what the work that's going on in my lab is basically attempting to test a couple of different hypotheses that, that try and get at this at this evolutionary paradox. So before we start, it's important for me to define a couple terms for you. So we're, we're used to thinking about things like heterosexuals and homosexuals, but these kinds of terms, they don't really translate well across cultures. So if you go to a place like Samoa and you say, are there any, are there any gay men here? Are there any homosexual men here? They'll say, no, they don't exist. And I mean, I've worked in Samoa now since 2003, and I can tell you that I've never met a gay man there. There are Now, there are males who have sex with other males, but none of those individuals self-identify as gay. None of them self-identify as homosexual. <clears throat> so those terms are very culturally specific, and we need, in order to have this conversation today, we need to have terms that we can apply across different cultures that, that are going to be sort of culturally neutral. And so the, the terms that I use in my research and that I'm going to use today and that you're going to have to learn in order to follow along are andro, androphilia and gynophilia. And essentially, androphilia means sexual attraction to adult males, and gynophilia means sexual, sexual attraction to adult females. So when you think of a, of a, a heterosexual male or a straight male, that's a gynophilic male a male who's sexually attracted to adult females. When you think of a lesbian, that's a gynophilic female, a female who's sexually attracted to adult females. When you think of an androphilic female, that's what you might call a straight female or a heterosexual female, a female who's sexually attracted to adult males. And when you think of a gay guy, homosexual guy, that's what we call male androphilia, male sexual attraction to adult males. So androphilia Gay guys and straight women are androphilic. Straight men and lesbians are gynophilic. Okay? Ready? There'll be a quiz afterwards. <laughs> I bet you'll do better than my students do. Okay, so this, when we're talking about male androphilia, 
again, male homosexuality, this is, this is what you're used to seeing. It's called egalitarian male homosexuality or male androphilia. And what, what this pattern consists of is two relatively gender-typical males. So we know from, there's lots of good research that, that indicates, uh, even though it's politically correct, incorrect to say, there's lots of good research that indicates that, relatively speaking, gay guys are, are, are more feminine than straight guys. But compared to how male homosexuality is expressed in other parts of the world, Male homosexuals in, in Western cultures like Canada are r- relatively masculine. They, 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 uh, they, they present in terms of their gender in a way that's more or less gender typical. They're, they're masculine. They behave like men. They self-identify as men. And they partner up with other individuals who are, who are like them, who are, who are androphilic, sexually attracted to adult males, who are relatively masculine. And then in these partnerships, they, they treat each other as equals. There's, there's no distinctions in terms of uh, gender or age or the roles that the individuals play. So this is the pattern that we're used to seeing in, in Canada. <clears throat> it's historically very recent. It's only existed probably for about 150 years in Euro-American societies. And it's, um, it's cross-culturally, it's, it's really very circumscribed. You see this pattern in places like uh, in Euro, Euro-American cultures, essentially, North America, Western Europe. And there are these emerging gay communities in places like, you know, really large cities like Bangkok or Bombay. Uh, you get these tiny little communities that are emerging of males that are, sexually attracted to adult males and that start adopting this gay identity because they're exposed to Western media. But the take-home message is that this pattern that everybody here thinks is normal for gay guys is not what you see in other parts of the world. Most places you see this pattern. It's called transgendered male androphilia or transgendered male homosexuality, if, if you like. So this pattern is characterized by one of the individuals is, uh, behaves in a gender atypical way, in a feminine way, um, and, the other individu- and they often are not identified as being a man or a woman in their culture. They're often identified as being a, a sort of third gender. In this case, uh, I'm giving you an example of, uh, uh, from the Zapotec culture, which is in southern Mexico. And in the Zapotec culture, these feminine males that are androphilic, that are sexually attracted to adult males, they're, they're not considered men, they're not considered women, they're, they're, they're called mushe. So they're a third gender in this culture. And mushe will partner with, uh, with men, with individuals that are unremarkably masculine and that self-identify as men, and who, in partnering with these mushe, uh, partnering having sex, their, uh, their, their manhood is not called into question. Their gender, their sexual orientation is not called into question. So in this cult, you can see this is taking place in a, in a public venue. There's other people behind. This guy is kissing this mushe in this public setting. Uh, this is not going to raise any questions that that guy is a man or even that that guy is a straight man because in this culture, this isn't considered homosexual activity because 
each of these individuals is from a different gender. One's a man, the other's a mouche. And this transgendered pattern of male androphilia, this is what's typical in many, many parts of the world, much more common than the egalitarian form that we're used to seeing here. So we've talked about androphilia and gynophilia, and we've talked about egalitarian male androphilia and transgendered male androphilia. Everybody's ready for the quiz? We're good? We're good? Because we, we have to understand this stuff in order to move forward because it gets because the way things work here isn't the way things work in the rest of the world, basically. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> male androphilia, we know from studies in behavioral genetics that it has a genetic component. The precise genes haven't been identified by molecular biologists, but familial and twin studies consistently point to the conclusion that male androphilia has some sort of genetic component. Now, I'm not saying genes cause male androphilia. I'm saying that genes influence it. They play some role in its development. But male, stop the presses, male homosexuals, male androphiles don't reproduce. It's hardly surprising. Everybody knows that, right? So the question then is, how, do the, how is it that these genes that are associated with this sexual preference, male androphilia, how do they get passed on from one generation to the next over evolutionary time if the individuals that possess those genes aren't reproducing? How can these genes be maintained in the population? So some people could say, well, it's not really an evolutionary problem because... Male homosexuality is a recent historical perversion, and it, it just hasn't been around for long. It's, it's, the, it's the product of a, a corrupt modern society. And I, could, I would say, okay, good hypothesis. Let's see, where, let's see what the data say. And we know from archaeological evidence that male-male sexual activity, it's existed for millennia. Um, this is just a couple of examples of pottery from the Mocha culture, which was an ancient culture in Peru. We could look at uh, cave paintings or petroglyphs from places like Mongolia or Sweden or Sicily. And um, there's these depictions of male-male sexual activity. So this suggests that, look, this, this kind of pattern has been around for a long time, and it does require an evolutionary explanation. Um, because it has this genetic basis, but these individuals aren't reproducing. So we're left with this question, this, this paramount question in evolutionary biology. Why haven't genes associated with male androphilia become extinct? This is a question that gets asked over and over and over in textbooks, in all kinds of disciplines. And the answer is, search me, we don't know. So that's kind of what my research program is all about, trying to figure out what, what could be going on. And <clears throat> this is where I go to work to, 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 to test the hypotheses that I test. Yeah, isn't it? It's terrible. Somebody has to do it, though, you know. <laughs> we all have our crosses to bear. So I work, I work in this place called in, Independent Samoa, or sometimes it's called Western Samoa, or, the Samoans just prefer Samoa without any qualifiers. It's a, it's a, a tiny little uh, group of islands in, in the South Pacific, Polynesian islands. 
and you might not know where it is. I didn't really know where it was before I started working there. I didn't know really anything about the geography of the Pacific. Um, so I'll just give you an idea. So Samoa, it's where that star is, that little purple star in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <clears throat> Probably the closest uh, gr other group of islands that you might be familiar with is Fiji. So Fiji is right here. So Fiji's about two hours by plane uh, southwest of Samoa. The other places you might be familiar with are, are, are the other places, New Zealand, which is about five hours to the to the southwest by plane. And it's about, um, it's about a nine-hour flight from Los Angeles. You used to be able to get there directly from Los Angeles. Now you have to fly through Hawaii, and there's a flight once a week. And <clears throat> this, is what, this is the entire country. It's, it basically consists of two large islands. And one of the islands over on the far side is called Upalu, and that's where the capital is, Apia. And the other island, uh, the which is the larger island, is Sava'i. Um, most people, the, the whole population of the country is, is about 180,000. About 160,000 live in Upalu, with about 30,000 in the capital. And then there's about 40,000 in Savai, so it's more, the more rural of the two islands, even though it's larger. And then there's a couple other little islands like Monono and Apalima that have tiny little populations on them as well. And most of the work I do, it's on Upalu and Savai, although I have also collected data on uh, Monono Island. <clears throat> so this is why I, I go to Samoa. I, I, I go there to work with these individuals called Fafafine. And um, these individuals, so this is, this is Petty. She's somebody I've worked with since 2003. And <clears throat> in Samoan culture, Petty is not considered to be a man, and she's not considered to be a woman. She's, this, she's a third gender, a fafafine. And fafafine are biological males, so Petty is a male just like I am. But she <clears throat> self-presents in public in this feminine way. She behaves in the manner of a woman. So if we break down the word fafafine, fa'a in the Samoan language means in the manner of, and fafine means woman, in the manner of a woman. So fafafine, from our cultural perspective, we would probably say that they were effeminate males uh, or highly feminine males, or in many cases we might call them transgendered males. Now, they're, they're not transsexual because they're not, uh, they don't experience any uh, dysphoria or discontent with their bodies. They don't want to change their genitalia, for example. They're perfectly happy having male genitalia. But in this culture, you can, having male genitalia is not uh, incompatible with living in the manner of a woman. It's not a disqualifier as it would be in this culture for living in the manner of a woman. And <clears throat> a couple things. Fafafine, they're highly tolerated in Samoan culture. And in many cases, they're even esteemed members of the family and the community. So they experience uh, very, well, they experience very little discrimination relative to the situation in Canada. And they're exclusively androphilic. So just like gay guys, Petty, who's a fafafine, and who would never identify as gay, never identify as homosexual, and would be deeply offended, indeed angry, if you suggested that that's what she was, uh, she's, she's androphilic. So what we have here is gay guys and fafafine, 
They have the same sexual orientation. They're androphilic, sexually attracted to adult males. But the manner in which that male androphilia is expressed is elaborated on differently in these different cultures. In this culture, the way you, you do male androphilia is like this. In that culture, the way you do male androphilia is like that. So the psychological patterns are the same, but the way they get culturally elaborated on differs. So <clears throat> the other thing is that uh, fafafine are identified in childhood. The, the, these are some kids playing cricket in a l- village just outside of Apia, the capital. And the one in the uh, little pink skirt there, that, that's a little fafafine. So <clears throat> the important thing here is that inclusion in the category, in this, in this social category, fafafine, it's, uh, it's, um, it's contingent on gender atypical behavior in childhood. It's not con- this kid isn't going out and having sex with, with guys. So inclusion in that category is contingent on not on sexual orientation, as it would be we identify a gay guy based on his sexual orientation. Fafafine, to be a fafafine, you're, uh, a criteria is not that you sleep with guys or are attracted to guys, but that you behave in a gender atypical manner. And just like gay guys, fafafine are gender atypical in childhood. We have we have lots and we have a tsunami of evidence to indicate that uh, androphilic males, regardless of the culture they grow up in, are in general more feminine in childhood than gynophilic males than straight males. So they're identified in childhood. And then they grow up, and the, their androphilia is expressed at puberty. Okay, so let's come back to this question. Why haven't genes associated with male androphilia become extinct? And I'm going to talk to you about two uh, hypotheses that my lab has been working on and that we have good data to present to you today. So the first is called the sexually antagonistic gene hypothesis. And this is sometimes called also called the, the female fecundity hypothesis. So you can think of it either way. And basically it says that, look, there are genes associated with androphilia, with sexual attraction to adult males. And if your sons get these genes, there's a reproductive cost because they're going to be homosexual. They're not going to reproduce. But if your daughters get these genes for, for, for androphilia, there's going to be a reproductive benefit and the reproductive benefit is going to be they'll reproduce more. They'll produce more offspring. So the genes are sexually antagonistic because in one sex, there's a reproductive cost. In the other sex, there's a reproductive benefit. So bottom line, most basic prediction that you can generate from this hypothesis is that the female kin of male androphiles, should, they should reproduce more. They should be producing more babies. That's the bottom line prediction. So we, we should be able to compare the female kin of male androphiles to the female kin of male gynophiles, straight guys. And it's the, it's the sisters of the gay guys, the mothers of the gay guys, the grandmothers of the gay guys, the aunties of the gay guys that should be having more babies compared to those same female kin categories of straight guys. And you know what? They, they do. It works. The hypothesis has been tested in Italy. It's been tested in the United States. And we've tested it in Samoa. And research indicates in, in these three very, very disparate cultures that the female kin of male androphiles 
have more significantly more babies than the female kin of male gynophiles. So there's, there is support for this hypothesis. That's my Samoan mother and father there, so makes me happy to put that picture up and see their faces, my Samoan sisters. <clears throat> so the other hypothesis is called the kin selection hypothesis. And this hypothesis suggests that, look, male homosexuals, male androphiles, they're not reproducing directly, but they share genes with close kin. So maybe by helping close kin survive and helping them reproduce, they can pass on indirectly the genes that they share with those close kin through the reproduction of those close kin. Okay? So you, you share genes with your close relatives. By helping them reproduce, you're helping to pass on those genes that you share with them. So the kin selection hypothesis then suggests that maybe this is how these genes for male androphilia are getting passed on. Because kin would share some of the genes that are associated with this trait. So basic prediction that you derive from this hypothesis is that androphilic males, they should exhibit more kin-directed altruism compared to gynophilic males or androphilic women. Translation, uh, gay guys or fafafine, they should be behaving in a more altruistic, in a more friendly manner to their close relatives than straight people because the, the, the replication of their genes is entirely contingent on their close kin reproducing, whereas the replication of genes that straight people have is more contingent on them just reproducing themselves. So it's the androphilic males who should show very high levels of kin-directed helping behavior compared to straight people. I can tell you that this hypothesis, it's been tested in Canada by my group. <clears throat> We've also test, my group has also tested in, in, in Japan because I do work in the gay community in Osaka there. Uh, it's been tested by other groups in, in the UK and also in United States. So in all of those cultures, no evidence. No evidence for this hypothesis. Gay guys and straight guys, they show equal amount of willingness to help kin. But you go to Samoa and you test this, and we find, no matter, and we've tested this many, many, many different times because I'm interested in trying to disprove it. And no matter what I do to disprove it, I can't. We always find that fafafine exhibit elevated avuncular tendencies compared to men and women. Avuncular means uncle-like. So we particularly, in all of these studies, we particularly focused on willingness to help, help nieces and nephews. And fafafine always report elevated willingness to help nieces and nephews compared to men and women. And this manifests behaviorally. They give more money to their nieces and nephews than, than men and women. So the kind of a question then is, how come we find support for this kin selection hypothesis in Samoa, but we don't find it in Canada, United States, England, Japan? Well, in all of those cultures, Canada, United States, England, Japan, we have the egalitarian form of male homosexuality, male androphilia. In, Sam in Samoa, we have this transgendered form. So we think that there's something about this transgendered form 
that's important in terms of the production or the manifestation of elevated uh, uncle-like or avuncular behavior. And so in order to test that, that's just a hypothesis, but in order to test it, I have to go to uh, an, another culture where we have transgendered male homosexuality, like, for example, perhaps southern Mexico where there's mouche. I showed you a picture of them earlier, to see if they're doing the same things that the Fafafini are, do, are doing in terms of elevated avuncularity. So then just to, um, just to sort of summarize, why don't androphilic men become extinct? Or androphilic males, I should say. <clears throat> because that's, that, that guy over there on the far side, he's a man, and he's androphilic. That one there, that's not a man. That's a fafafine, and she's androphilic. So, again, what's going on in their heads sexually? Same thing. It's just it's been culturally elaborated on differently. And in her, in her culture, she was feminine as a child, and they just basically let her be feminine, and she grew up to be feminine as an adult. In his culture, he was probably pretty, relatively speaking, feminine as a child, but the culture didn't allow for that because that's not the way men behave. And so he was required to masculinize. And so you get these different gender role presentations despite the fact that the sexual orientations are the same. So why don't genes for androphilic males become extinct? Well, probably the genes that influence male androphilia, they, they may be maintained in populations over evolutionary time through some combination of this sexually antagonistic selection. So there's a benefit for maintaining these genes in the population because females that have these genes, the female kin of male androphiles, are more fecund. And then, so you have a situation where these females, they're genetically predisposed to be more fecund, to have more babies. But then on top of it, they have brothers who are more avuncular and who are helping them have with their children, and this maybe, in addition, helps to even further perpetuate these genes. So we have sort of a gene culture coevolution going on, uh, where the sexually antagonistic selection and the kin selection are working together to perpetuate these genes uh, in the gene pool over evolutionary time. And so I'd just like to conclude by thanking a whole bunch of people. These are my students on the side that I work with, and in the center there is a colleague of mine, Nancy Bartlett, who I began the research with. She's at Mount St. Vincent University in, um, in Halifax. And then lots of different um, Samoan individuals, um, many of them Fafafine, who uh, I couldn't do the research without. Many of them are my research assistants. And I'd like to just close by thanking all of these wonderful agencies that uh, fund my research. And uh, if you have questions, or I'd be happy to answer them, or we can eat, and then I can answer questions. Or, and I thank you very much for listening. <laughs>